the uh, sermon series on relationship is, is, is coming to an end. We're uh, heading into Advent in a week or so and uh, wrapping up what has been uh, an attempt to unpack some of the implications of the Trinity in our daily lives. And that is to say that because we were created to reflect the image of God and God presents himself in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we are always working through, particularly in a fallen and broken world, how to build and trust and maintain uh, healthy and deep relationships. We were not designed to be alone And we weren't even designed simply to have a relationship with God because God says that when a human was alone, when Adam was alone, it wasn't good. Even though he had a perfect relationship with God, no sin uh, breaking the conversation between he and the divine. And yet there was a way in which one who corresponds to, who completes humanity to be in relationship was necessary. And in a fallen and broken world, there is no shortage of difficulties uh, in trying to maintain relationships. One of the scholars has said that the challenge when Adam and Eve sinned is that what they had collectively understood as a goal that was the glory of God, now nobody knew what the other person's agenda was. Once we all have our own agenda, it becomes harder and harder to trust the other person. If we don't share a common goal, heaven knows what you're trying to do, what your motivation is in any benign activity. You may have a very different end goal than I do. And Adam and Eve could no longer trust that they were on the same page, that they were headed in the same direction. And that is significantly Uh, what makes it difficult to be in relationship. This morning, we're going to talk about uh, the nature of mentorship. Uh, We're going to look at Titus, which has kind of a neat, tight passage about the encouragement of older uh, men to younger men and and, uh, uh, women who are further along and and younger women. Trying to avoid the word old woman. Do you see why I did? Oh, wait, no, I fell. I I, I already dropped the ball. But... uh, those, uh, those matured in, uh, in rich dignity. Um, thank you, Polly. That there's this, uh, this need for mentoring relationships, but, but it's, it's always been difficult. There was problems in Crete, which is why uh, Paul had to write to Titus about how to encourage and structure those relationships. We'll talk a little bit about that history in a moment. But just to acknowledge that in our own culture, There are multiple factors, but I want to suggest that there is a challenge that we have, Uh, whether it is our view of egalitarianism, whether it is our desire uh, to uh, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, or whether it is the fear of simply not wanting to be responsible for another human being, mentoring relationships are a little fewer and far between. We, uh, We work in a culture that is not uncommon for us to want to downplay the differences, downplay the significance, downplay the fact that I may be more knowledgeable than you are, or you are more knowledgeable than I am, that I might submit to your wisdom that I don't have to figure it out on my own, and that having folks who are further down the road that I rely on, that I let into my life and expect will speak wisdom, It's not just that younger folks don't necessarily seek it out, which I don't know is always true, but it's also not uncommon 
for folks that I know that are further down the road to not want the responsibility. The old line is, you know, don't call me Mr. Bell. My dad was Mr. Bell. I'm EC. What am I trying to avoid by being called Mr. Bell? Is it merely the formality? Or is it possibly the responsibility of being one who is further down the road? Not just respect for respect's sake, but an acknowledgement that in our communities of faith and in our neighborhoods and in our friendships, it's not just that I have a friendship with someone who is the same age with whom I can be honest and open, but the fact that I might open and it's good for me to open my life to those who are further down the road to speak into my life, that their wisdom and experience has value and weight to encourage people to take on that responsibility within the community of faith, as well as encourage those who are coming up that there is and should be resources for them in the older members of our community. So let's start by putting uh, Titus in front of us. Titus chapter 2, famous passage in many regards. I'll just be reading through uh, verse 8 this morning. Hear now God's word. But as for you, teach that what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. But they, too, are to teach what is good and to so train, and we'll talk about that word, but probably bring to wisdom the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works, And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that the opponents may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask again that as even our Lord and Savior learned from you, We pray that we would continue to not only learn from your word, but Lord, those that you put in our lives who point us to who you are, both in their words and in their actions. Lord, thank you that you have not left us alone. And we do pray that as we work through your word, that it would be useful and beneficial for the building up of your people. And Lord, if anything is said that is not true, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So as we uh, work through this idea, I want us to think about how in our culture 
We have a tendency more to think about getting advice in, in, in two ways often. One is the conference mindset, which is I go to some place, some speaker who I'm really not going to personally interact with gives me seven steps or five steps or fill in the blank to fix a particular area of my life that I think needs encouragement. Not to say that that doesn't have value, but that's not a mentoring relationship. I'm not intimately involved with that person. That person doesn't know me and how my particular circumstances might impact the advice that they give me. Not that the seven ideas are wrong, but how to apply them and even hold me accountable in the midst of that. The other is uh, the life coach. And this is the idea that, that, again, I want that personal interaction. I need somebody more intimate, but I'm paying for it. And if at some point I don't like it, then I won't pay you anymore. But there isn't a sense in which our communities and cultures have developed that personal relationship. The personal life coach is touching on a need. I need someone who knows me, who is further down the road and can give advice and counsel. It's not a bad idea, but it reminds me of that uh, line in that old movie, uh, Crocodile Dundee, right? Where uh, he's at a, a party. He's moved from Australia to New York. He's getting shown around. Uh, and he's at a party, and he makes some joke about someone being crazy, and then finds out later that there was a woman in that conversation who was seeing a counselor, and he feels bad instantaneously. He's like, my stars, I shouldn't have called her crazy. And he finds out that, no, a counselor in our culture is someone who you can talk to about personal and private matters, and his response is, well, doesn't she have friends? And in his culture, the expectation uh, is that to a certain level, there would probably be more transparency, more mentoring, more interaction. And so there's a way in which our culture uh, is certainly prone to professionalize help. And when I professionalize help, I have a tendency then to be a consumer, and I can take and leave that help as I choose because I've purchased it. The relational aspect of the community of faith is one in which the expectation is not simply that I need help, but there are ways in which the relationships I cultivate are designed to encourage me even at times when I might be more resistant. It's because there's a love and a commitment to the body of Christ, to community, that I have mentors in my life to speak into my life. Because I need it, and they have a responsibility to provide it. And so this morning we look uh, at how the Bible moves from a notion of the conference mindset to more of a worship mindset. That is to say, as the community of faith comes together to hear God's word read and sung and preached and, uh, and interacted with, that we are, as you will, uh, a conference is something of a, of a cheap uh, knockoff of a good worship service. I should be learning and being transformed by what happens when I come into worship that I can use the rest of my life. And to some degree, uh, the life coach is filling a need in our culture for deeper and richer mentorships because there's not enough mentors to go around. And how do we build those things up then within the community of faith? So what are the two, uh, two main sections of our passage? I would suggest this morning that first, uh, what does it 
take to qualify as a mentor? And then secondly, what does a mentor teach and instruct from Paul's encouragement here to Titus? So first of all, what are the qualities of a mentor? Verse 1 says that as you, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now this is an expectation for both male and female mentors. You, plural here, when you teach, make sure it's in accord with sound doctrine. Now we could have a lot of fun going through what was happening in the passage before it in chapter 1. But there were a number of teachers, private tutors, which is very common in the culture, who apparently were teaching things that were unsettling the community of faith on the island of Crete. And they were, some of them, taking certain views of circumcision and uh, Jewish syncretism and syncretism with the Greek culture. And they were unpacking that in such a way as to really run contrary to what Paul had taught and what Titus was reinforcing in his ministry. And Paul's very direct. We need to teach what is sound doctrine. Now, as Reformed people, I want to discourage us not quickly uh, to go to uh, too many thoughts about our long doctrinal excursuses, which are very important. But in this case, let's think first about the Sermon on the Mount. Let's think about the implications of Matthew 28, go into the world making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Of course, Paul says that it's important to believe about the resurrection because without the resurrection, he says in Corinthians, we are above all people should be most grieved over, most frustrated. So of course those doctrines teach important things like the resurrection. It's the basis on which our hope is based, to be sure. But it is the unpacking of the Sermon on the Mount and what does it mean in the midst of a pragmatic culture to have sound doctrine uh, taught. And so one, the quality is that we teach that which is of sound doctrine that is based on the teachings of Christ, that unpacks the richness of the gospel. For men, sober-minded, not given to uh, wild speculation. Uh, again, what we know here from Crete is uh, that there was a tendency uh, towards wild uh, speculation and um, a measure of conspiracy theories. Uh, they loved to speculate on what was going on in the Senate, what was going on in various uh, political and social intrigues within the Roman culture. And the instability of that is being spoken against. There's a lot of records that we have from Crete in this time that talk about the need for those men less to speculate and more to be sober-minded, of sound faith. Again, the question here is not whether one wrestles, but one is stable in their wisdom and in their experience in the faith. That the mind is sober and fixed on those things which are eternal, which again, culturally, was somewhat uh, not the spirit of the age. Sound in their faith as they went through the ups and downs, relying upon who Christ is and the hope of the faith. And then we see, lastly, love and steadfastness. Again, 
interesting, uh, not surprising. Culture wasn't always known uh, for men's expressions of love, although we're going to read a couple of wonderful quotes of a husband's uh, love for his wife from the first century, which are beautiful. But love, think again, 1 Corinthians 13. This is the love of a mentor who is going to speak truth into someone's life, but it is that love that shapes the way we interact with those that we are further down the road from, not you knuckleheaded kid to, ah, yes, I did that too, but here's the wisdom. I love you enough to tell you that you don't have to engage in those sorts of financial practices, or let me walk with you as you walk through the challenge you're having in misunderstanding or disagreeing with your wife or your friend or your child. It's in love that we come alongside. And Paul is saying that mentors worth having are sober-minded. They understand and have a stability in their thought. They are stable in their faith, even as they work through the difficulties of what it is to walk by faith. They express themselves in love. And as we see in Scripture, that does mean being angry at sin, but not sinning in anger. In loving you enough to care and speak truth into your life and apologize if they do it poorly, but recommend and still encourage that the wisdom is sound. Steadfastness, which reinforces the importance of sober-minded. The dignity and the self-control, worthy of respect, not because of perfection, but because they follow Christ, exemplified by sober-mindedness, by dignity, by soundness of faith, love, and steadfastness. As we grow, men, these are characteristics which should mark our lives as godly men. Single, husbands, widows, grandfathers, fathers, friends, and mentors. For women, reverent. So again, there's a lot that needs to be unpacked here, and I have limited time. But in the middle, well, there wasn't much middle class, but in the ruling class, in the landowning class of Rome, in the first and second and third centuries, there was a growing liberation of a particular kind which had an emphasis really on uh, being irreverent, uh, breaking down some of the frustrations that people had with the Roman uh, patriarchal culture, and uh, so there was a growing uh, group of women who were trying to act like men. Uh, and sadly, in Roman culture, it was expected that men would have affairs, uh, but that the women wouldn't. And so there's actually a, a, a wedding speech that was given, written by the great scholar Philo, who helped young married women understand that, of course, their husbands were going to have affairs, but it's okay, it doesn't mean anything, and it's because he actually really loves you and respects you as a mother and a wife that he 
goes off and does other things. And so in a culture where there were different expectations, women of particular education and political power and economic power are beginning to say, well, no, those are double standards. And instead of encouraging sobriety in the men, there was the unfortunate embracing of, well, then I can do it too. And I'll do it even more aggressively than you've done it. And it was significant enough to where uh, Augustus Caesar begins to write uh, laws to discourage this kind of new behavior by uh, women of stature and power within the Roman culture. So when we talk about reverence here, we're talking about embracing the most scandalous notions that are poorly represented in men and certainly no better represented when women follow in the same flawed footsteps. A disrespect and a lack of reverence. And again, the amount of information and, and, and uh, papyruses and various things that survive that document this evolution in Roman culture is there. And so I'm sorry for the dry history. It's really not dry. It's really quite scandalous. But I can't get into it now. Much fun was had by... No, not. That's not what I'm saying. So uh, not slanderers. Again, remember what slander is. Right? Slander is a true report given for the purpose of wounding another. So it's not that they were lying about each other. It's that you'd find out some true dirt and then you'd tell somebody else. Now imagine, again, multiple generations living within a household because even the wealthy often lived multi-generationally within a large house. They had their own businesses. They had a family. It was a whole sort of community and structure within that family. And we all know that we're looking forward to Thanksgiving and Christmas. And yet there is this part of it when extended family comes and certain family members have a certain tendency to talk about other family members. And we have romantic notions about what happens at Thanksgiving dinner. And then some of us have the reality of what happens at Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner. And it's usually not because anybody's lying about somebody, but my stars, do we keep having to bring up the fact that Frank's you know, son lost another million dollars on that deal and he's not a very good with his finances and his family's in you know, all kinds of difficulty. And we're just saying that because we care about him. But it kind of makes dinner awkward, right? And so what's being talked about here is people who have a fair amount of time on their hands who are not being responsible in the ways that they should, which we'll talk about in a minute, ending up just talking about how other people are not terribly good or as good as they could be, and that rots the foundation of relationship. And you want mentors who are not given to slander, asserting their own position by, in subtle ways, undermining the positions of others even if what they're saying is technically true. Not given to slander. Not slaves to much wine. Now again, uh, the idea was in some scholarship that this is because there wasn't much pain medication. As you got older, you needed to manage your pain with wine. But some of the new scholarship finding older documents are indicating that this is also a hangover from this cultural shift. Yeah. Don't know how I served that up, Sean, without you. Yeah, exactly. It's a hangover. Lots of hangovers. Too many hangovers. Uh, partly because, again, uh, this embracing of I can be every bit as much like the debauchery of men, these women who were following this particular train of, I don't know, neo-tragic feminism. There's good feminism and tragic feminism. Uh, tragic feminism is we're going to do the exact same stupid thing that men do. 
Um, and there was that kind of embracing of we can do the exact same things you can do. And Paul saying, no, this is not the kind of mentorship that you want. And so we have categories of clear and faithful, worthy of respect, even as um, we wrestle through this life together. So then what are they supposed to teach? Uh, Well, uh, the women are supposed to teach what is good. And uh, what is good in this context is uh, that there is love of husband and children, uh, which again, we know is not always easy to love, especially if you have a culture which at some point expects uh, easy dalliances of your husband and your children, um, perhaps not around very often. To love your husband and your children to love the household and to do that work well. Now, again, uh, let me just read. Uh, of course, they, they're in the context of uh, people died early. Um, but what a good wife looked like to a Roman in their best moments. Because I think it changes a little bit our sense of what taking care of a household looks like in suburbia today, which is a rather smaller playing field than what was being spoken of as Paul exhorts women to care for their households in the first century. This is uh, on a plaque in remembrance of a wife who passed away. Uh, Friend, I have much, this is kind of the way they'd write these epitaphs. Friend, I have much to say, stop and read. This tomb, which is not fair, is for a fair woman. Her parents gave her the name Claudia. She loved her husband, In her heart, she bore two sons, one of whom she left on earth, the other beneath it. She was pleasant to talk with, and she walked with grace. She kept the hours and the house and worked in wool. That is all. You may go. And then uh, another one. This is, again, the the richness of what this looked like. A physician in Pergamum whose wife was named uh, Panthea and who lived in the second century A.D. recorded that she was not only the mother of his children and had cared for him, uh, him and the children, but that she also took the hem and helm and steered the household course and heightened the fame of the healing arts and practices of the family business. The scholar here says this reflects something of the complexities and diverse responsibilities as well as the opportunities in running the household. And understanding that there, when Paul is exhorting women to run the household well, imagine again the family businesses. These are folks who owned the property. These were women who were running the family business as the husbands often were perhaps outselling the business while the wives managed the olive groves or the medical business, or if they were into sheep, the woolen business. Complicated relationships. We've got to be careful not to impose certain aspects of our modern understanding of household, which may be far more limited than what Paul was talking to as he described the world in which he lived. And so when... Women are encouraged by older women to 
be that good and stable part of the house. It is no less than the beauty of walking in grace and loving husband and loving children. It is also in using your gifts in the diverse ways of adding to a household in the fullness of what that means in every season of your life and having mentors that help you understand the richness of what it means to be about the business of the household, the household that you and your husband create. For the men, they are to do good works. Again, uh, the men of Crete were known. Paul makes a joke about them being uh, liars, and it's, uh, it's a hilarious joke because he says one of their own scholars says all Cretans are liars, and this is true. So is it true that the Cretans said that they were all liars, or was he lying when he said all Cretans were liars, if all Cretans are liars? But nonetheless, there's enough inf- information in this that tells us that it was a fairly irresponsible time among those of wealth and leisure, that uh, there was not a lot of responsibility, that they were known uh, Cretans as those who did not tell the truth, who were fairly crass in their language, uh, very uh, aggressive in bending their elbow. And so as Titus is here to train these men and to encourage them in the right way, it is culturally pushing against the irresponsibility of the men in this culture, their willingness to gravitate towards the most vulgar and crass of humor, to speak ill of the other, to embolden themselves and to encourage their own uh, status. We must teach good works. Think Ephesians 4. God has created apostles and prophets, teachers, evangelists, and shepherds that God's people might be prepared to do good works. We are to encourage the younger men in the church by our actions and by our words in what it means to do the work of the kingdom, to do good to others, not primarily to use others. In a culture that's pragmatic and sees the other as a means to my end, do the men that mentor show themselves to be a means to another's end, willingly serving and willing, desiring, and encouraging? Integrity. Our yes being yes and our no being no. So important for men and women, but certainly as we lead to have our yes be yes and our no be no. Here is the goal. The goal, of course, is the glory of God and the reputation of the body. We build one another up. We need mentors who've made mistakes that have brought perhaps even shame on the body of Christ to direct us and encourage us, to warn us, and to remind us that we can be restored. We need women to encourage in the midst of the challenging life that all of us have and the unique ways in which both men and women interact with parenting, interact with the fears of what happens next in life and the transitions, to have those who have gone further down the road to speak into our lives, not simply because it is good for us as individuals, 
but because it shows the richness of God's blessing generation after generation and guards us from being reactive as a church. Culture changes regularly. We need the stability of those who say it's been bad and good before. It will be bad and good today. And it will be bad and good tomorrow until Christ comes. We need the stability of our mentors to guide and encourage, to give us hope and to give us real steps forward. Paul imagines that navigating a broken and fallen world will require mentorship. My encouragement this morning is that as we seek to glorify God, as we seek to have the church known and respected in our community, it would be because we know old and ancient truths applied in a modern and ever-changing situation yet stable in faith, in hope, and in love. That is our greatest calling as mentors. It is our greatest need as those who need to be mentored, to be raised in that sure knowledge of the love and faithfulness and hope of Christ. May we encourage one another. May we build into each other those great truths. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would build relationships Lord, give us the courage, not in our own arrogance, to be mentors, but Lord, as you might use us to encourage those who are younger. Lord, we pray that those who are younger would be encouraged, would trust, and Lord, that in so doing, your church would be known as a place of growth and of wisdom, of love and mercy. We pray this all in Christ's precious name. Amen.